Welcome back to Around the Room, Season 2. I'm Daniel Ennis. This is another episode of Ask an Expert, where Janet Pope, one of Canada's leading rheumatologists, takes your questions and talks us through some of the common and not-so-common issues we face in practice. Janet, welcome back to the show. How are you? Great. Thanks, Daniel. And um, I'm trying to perfect all this podcast stuff. I will eventually. (laughs) I think we're all trying to perfect it still. So it's really nice to have you back on the show. Um, Last time, uh, we we had a really interesting conversation about methotrexate. And this time, we're going to talk about something that I know is very near and dear to your heart, um, Raynaud's. So... I feel like the more Raynaud's I see, the more questions I have about Raynaud's and the more I read about it, the more I wonder if I'm over or under diagnosing it. And so I really need an expert like you to help uh, clear things up for me. So I, I want to start simple and then we'll we'll build. So first question is from a listener. Hi there, this is Shauna, a resident from the University of Alberta. Here's my question for Dr. Pope. How do you define Raynaud's? Right. So for Raynaud's 101, it's vasospasm that's reversible of blood vessels, often arteries, often digital arteries, but can occur elsewhere. So I, I basically define it myself as a spasm of uh, arteries and or arterioles reversible with pallor and at least one other color, rhubar, cyanosis. But I kind of like that there's white because then modeled people, normal reaction to the cold, you don't get them. So it's a more exaggerated reaction to cold or stress or to bad blood vessels, actually. I see. So you use, they have to have white and then one of the other two colors. So if someone says my fingers turn blue in the cold, you'd say that's acrocyanosis or the nor- the human condition, but it's not Raynaud's. Is that is that right? That's right. And okay. I'd like it to be somewhat well demarcated, but I realize when people are going by and try phasic um, sort of as they take their picture or right in front of you, if they're in the exam mm-hmm. room, it's hard to say it's well demarcated, but it's not modeled hands. It's not that kind of thing. And and how how precisely do you like ask this efficiently? Because I find like I tend to like talk around it for a while before I say, does any does any of that sound familiar? Um, right. What do you say to a patient? Exactly. So I usually say, because I still am old fashioned and wear my lab coat. And when it's sort of clean, I say, you go that color in the cold or point to a sheet. Do your fingers or fingertips go this color in the cold? And people go, I don't know. Well, that means no. Right. People okay. know if their hands look dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. that That's helpful. Um, okay. So now that we have kind of like a, 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 a def- definition of the, of Raynaud's, what makes you consider secondary Raynaud's? And then sub-question, do you use capillaroscopy in your initial assessment of someone with Raynaud's? Excellent question. So secondary Raynaud's are things that are more severe Raynaud's, complications such as digital ulcers, certain age groups. So they often say age over the age of 40 or 45 or 50. But if someone is like 65 and this is brand new Raynaud's, that is secondary in my opinion until proven otherwise. So really older age of onset, that doesn't mean it's old, just older age of onset makes me really wonder. And then secondary would be things such as um, lack of an arterial pulse, 
blood pressure differences between two arms. So things like GCA or GPA, things like that, that could be affecting larger blood vessels or medium to large. And then um, uh, rash in the sun, uh, frequent sores in mouth and nose, all these things, but kind of witness or puffy fingers. Mm -hmm. Um, So anything on review of history and physical that make you point towards it and particularly age of onset being older is as I say that so that's a pretty good clue then do I use capillaroscopy yes so I have a dermatoscope that is polarized light and magnification and that's really helpful but if you don't have that you can train your eyes to see um, macro capillaries at the periungal area but you can also use an otoscope or ophthalmoscope which um, is blasphemy in the capillaroscopy (laughs) circles but it actually is helpful so you're just magnifying and going for normal non-oblique non-polarized light and that can be helpful and I think the more you do it the more you'll find things and People with primary, uh, say young kids um, with primary Raynaud's, sometimes you can see a little bit of dilated capillaries, but if they're wild and crazy and lots of them that are dilated and or hemorrhages or obvious dropout, all those things are not normal. Would you say if you see those things that they definitively have an underlying cause or just there, there's a higher likelihood, like it's a risk factor that you, you it's time to go hunting for an underlying diagnosis at that point? How do you how do you use that uh, clinically? So there are people in transition. So I'll say sometimes a few dilated capillaries and I'm going to follow you and I'm actually probably going to investigate and do the otherwise waste of time ANA because you don't want to <laughs> do it in a 16 year old because it'll be positive. There's nothing else wrong. But if you get it's like anything, I guess if a blood sugar was borderline, you might not have diabetes, you might If a blood sugar is 20, you got diabetes. I don't need an HbA1c to tell you that, right? Right. right. So I think it's like that for dilated capillaries, slight abnormality, the usual rheumatologist might not pick up unless that they're doing huge magnification, but really uh, quite crazy. Like any, I think most of us have seen dermatomyositis and the dilated capillaries. You can see quite easily when you're looking with the naked eye. Those are kind of wild and they're abnormal. Okay, so if you can see it with your your naked eye without doing capillaroscopy, it's probably important. And if you find very subtle abnormalities on capillaroscopy, you're kind of in that gray middle area where you're going to need some follow-up, potentially further investigation, um, in, in addition to the other risk factors you mentioned. Okay, so um, you, you started to address this, and I want to dig into it a little bit more, because the classic teaching is that in someone who you clinically and demographically have decided has likely primary Raynaud's don't do further investigations because they're likely not to yield um, a a secondary cause. So when should you send an ANA and what should you really do if it's, if it's positive? Right, or, or you right. get the so, consult. You, someone sent it on that 16-year-old. We've already done it. Exactly. Yeah, so right often that. it's been done before we get to them. And it, sometimes it's been done many times, which is an even bigger waste of time. <laughs> yep. Still positive. What a shock. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, there, there's occasionally a surprise. So we'll not, let's go to the non-surprise first. So usually... If someone's um, younger age of onset, they might have a family history of Raynaud's. That's quite common. But they also might have a family history of connective tissue disease. So Raynaud's uh, clusters in families, but and those, say, with an aunt or even a first-degree relative with systemic sclerosis, instead of being about 3 in 100, it's about 10 in 100. So they're kind of worried and scared. Sometimes you might be tempted to do an ANA in those people to rule out, uh, and then you get a centimeter 
Mira and Nucleolar and you're kind of stuck with them indefinitely. But I think, um, you know, a young age of onset, history, physical are good. So you, you can't do it as well with telemedicine. Um, and I have looked at their capillaries. I'll usually say this looks like primary. It's mild. If things change, come back. Or if it's moderately severe uh, enough that you might want to have treatment or that it bothers the person a lot, um, that's a more severe complaints of Raynaud's because it is a symptomatic thing for patients, of course, then you might actually say, well, maybe I'll look into it, but don't think that you're going to rule out anything because a negative ANA helps to rule out, but a positive ANA doesn't rule in anything. But these in-betweeners, if they have an interesting pattern, if you can get a pattern, not everyone gets that, but a centromere or nucleolar, those people um, are, it's interesting. Or if they have, say, a peripheral uh, pattern that can go with things like lupus, uh, double-stranded DNA is often with peripheral or rim, but we don't see peripheral and rim very much. So we we really should we should really stick to our guns about doing investigations based on the the clinical picture. So if they really do look like they have primary renodes, even if you find that positive ANA or or even other antibodies associated with it, if they still don't have the clinical diagnosis of lupus or systemic sclerosis. It, it still doesn't change the way that you're going to treat them up front. And, you know, maybe it would adjust how you follow them. But we really that that's a really like far removed benefit um, from the upfront test. So avoid it. Uh, yes, unless you really think it. it's indicated. Right. However, if someone did it, and maybe we didn't want them to do it, <laughs> right. if it's centromere, they're stuck with me long term. Yeah, absolutely. But it usually isn't. It's usually nucleolar or homogeneous. So it's it's the non-specific patterns and usually low titer. Do you have a do you have a a number that you can quote off the top of your head? Unfair question, but of if you have Raynaud's and a positive ANA or Raynaud's and a negative ANA. How likely are you to develop a connective tissue disease? How much should we uh, worry? Right. So these are, it's a hard, hard to give you a number because they're different studies and these are often in subspecialty clinics. So in mm-hmm. some of the European clinics, they're like vascular clinics that are run by general medicine and in the U S or Canada and other places, it's often rheumatology clinics. So then you have to say, well, did they have something else? So if someone has, um, uh, a sister with lupus, she's got an ANA, moderate positive, and looks like primary Raynaud's. Because of the family history, her risk of lupus, instead of being in about one in a thousand, is probably uh, one in a hundred. So it does increase the risk, but that's still pretty low for risk. Yeah. So it's really, it's the company it keeps. So again, just like the more things you have when counting criteria, the more likely you are to have a diagnosis or a disease. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, with all of that as background, uh, let's talk about how you actually treat Raynaud. So this is a perfect time to take a question from a listener. Hi there, this is Greg. I'm a resident at University of Alberta. Here's my question for Dr. Pope. Can you tell us your personal strategies for first, second, and third line treatments and dosing for Raynaud's? Absolutely. So first line treatment is uh, stay warm, avoid stress, uh, easier said than done. Wear really good mitts and a hat because gloves, your fingers are set, your fingers are separated. So you get uh, more potential heat loss. Um, 
for the young kids, do up your coat, wear boots in the winter, shockingly. So you try to treat them not like a teen, but like an adult that they might actually do the right thing and keep warm. Um, the little kids, it's easier to, but the teens, uh, it's kind of not cool. You got to have, you got to be cool to be cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? So for those, it's a problem. So most primary Raynaud's doesn't need treatment. And I guess the only other sort of qualifier is that if you look like primary Raynaud's, but it's more in your feet than your hands, maybe you have chill blains. Half of those people actually have SLE, but half don't. So those kind of folks, if they have their, their spasm and they don't always know their toes are white, but in this day and age, everyone pretty much has a cell phone at a certain age. So they do uh, pop a picture and, and take it to say, oh yeah, my toes did go white because otherwise they're not looking at their feet all the time and when they're outside. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it's more in your feet, just think that they might have another problem going on, peripheral vascular disease, maybe chill blains with it, things like that. So then when we come down to treatment, so again, most of primary Raynaud's doesn't need treatment. I would say under 5% of primary Raynaud's actually needs medication, and it's probably even less than that. And when we talk about treatment, our first line treatment, whether it's primary or secondary, is a calcium channel blocker, usually because we only have it available now as long acting. So long acting nifedipine, so nifedipine XL, 30 milligrams once a day, because we don't have 10 and 20 milligrams anymore. They're discontinued. If that doesn't work, I go to a cousin of of, um, nifedipine, so either doesn't work or isn't tolerated. I stop and switch to amylodipine if you want. I don't like it because if you actually have puffy fingers from your almost getting systemic sclerosis, um, amylodipine gives you more uh, fluid retention and puffiness. So I usually go to philodipine, uh, 2.5 to 20 milligrams a day, even higher if you had to, and just slowly increasing if they need nighttime, if they're hypotensive, but it seems to really help them. So as a, for instance, I've had a ski instructor with primary Raynaud's. She wants to keep her job. Her feet are freezing. She has the hand and sock warmers that she's gotten from sort of the sports uh, stores, but she might need a long acting nifedipine on those days where it's really windy. She looks at the temperature on her phone for the next day and just takes her um, Adelat or nifedipine at bedtime. So that's kind of the thing. If we go on to secondary for treatment, should we do that? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So secondary uh, Raynaud's for treatment. Um, Again, most secondary Raynaud's of connective tissue disease, such as SLE, Sjogren's, uh, dermato or polymyositis, and even RA as about mm, one in Five people with RA have Raynaud's, which we hardly ever talk about. So obviously mild and we forget to take that history because it's not really very bothersome. So most of those secondaries don't need treatment. Some are quite ischemic, say um, a GCA that really does have um, almost pulselessness in one arm, or of course, the systemic sclerosis crowd. Um, If the CCBs don't work of that that variety that we've talked about, um, then I would probably think of a PDE5, which is difficult to get access. And the PDE5s, I use mostly sildenafil. Um, sometimes the rep that knows the other rep in the urology clinic and can get it free for your patient for a bit. But um, in Canada, sildenafil is generic. There's flat dose pricing. So it comes in 25, 50, and 100. So I might say 100, try to divide it into four and do 25 BID, so twice a day, and keep going up. And what we do know is in the sildenafil 
um, sort of uh, trials of pulmonary arterial hypertension, patients could tolerate for pulmonary arterial hypertension up to 80 milligrams TID. So I've rarely gone to 75 TID, which is then kind of expensive. But a lot of people will level out at 25 BID to say 50 um, TID. So in that kind of group, if that doesn't work or there's complications, significant digital ulcers, you could add something topically such as um, we used to do the nitro patch, stick the uh, needle in it and squish it between each finger where your digital arteries are or on both sides of the base of your thumb. So not distal because it's hard to vasodilate when you don't have blood flow there. So proximal at the web spaces to vasodilate. Um, otherwise, um, we used to get nitro tubes, which is very difficult to get, really discontinued most of the time. So you could use things, but you have to warn them. Diltiazam topical can be compounded or they can get it for, I think it's the treatment of anal fissures. So you remind them this is not for your anal fissure, which you don't have. It's to go in the web space, see if it helps. Or we move on to other things. So uh, Ilopros, which is uh, outpatient peripheral IV daily times five. If you can't get an infusion room daily times five, it might be three days, one week to the next. But it's not it's not been trialed other than daily times five. And for maintenance on some of these bad digital ulcer, complicated, really severe Raynaud's that really I'm talking now systemic sclerosis. Sometimes we also top up um, one or two days, a month of Ilopros back to back. Can you use epiprostanol? Yes, but um, it's hard to get it. It's only approved. That's Flowland, the other name. It's only approved for PAH, so it's hard to get it. Can you use Alprostadil? That's PGE1. Yes, but it needs admission. It needs cardiac monitoring. And sometimes it's done with the central line. And I don't like PGE1 Alprostadil because in the randomized controlled trials, after about a week or so, you're as good as placebo. Whereas in Ilopros, five days outpatient IV, even at three months, you still have superiority above placebo. So that's kind of um, more than 101. We're into uh, the second course of Raynaud, so 202 course. <laughs> that's right. Okay, um, a, a couple of specific entities that I've I've seen used in the past. So one, pentoxifiline. Is that is that something that you use with any regularity? I, I think kind of one of the concepts there was like, it is not a calcium channel blocker. It is still a peripheral vasodilator. It's used by vascular surgeons for peripheral disease, uh, peripheral vascular disease. And um, it's, as far as I understand, relatively inexpensive. So it, it kind of like bridges the gap between calcium channel blockers and going onto uh, like sildenafil. Uh, is that something that you've used? Right. So I usually stop it. So the other name for that is Trental. And um, it didn't meet the criteria for even peripheral vascular disease because of some degree of effect, but not always cost effective. And that might have been done in the days before it was genericized. And that's usually uh, data from the UK on treatment of peripheral vascular disease. If they see a peripheral vascular surgeon, they usually get that prescription no matter what. And it's actually a neat drug. It actually... Um, you know, stabilizes all these um, membrane things and von right. factor goes better and la-di-da. So it's a drug that looks like it should work, but right. sadly, um, I don't usually see it work. However, for every 10 patients where I stop it, one will come back or two will come back, back on it. And they usually say, my vascular surgeon said, what were you thinking? Said, well, <laughs> I'm thinking it does have one negative randomized control trial, but any trial in Raynaud's that's negative, they're usually... Um, even positive trials, they're, they're low N 
not followed for very long, often not optimally dosed. So a negative trial doesn't mean something doesn't work. It just probably means it's less likely to work. Got it. I, and I have read, I can't remember where I read this, but I believe pentoxifiline may have some anti-TNF activity, but I'm, that's like deep in the recesses of I my memory. I think you're absolutely right. But unfortunately, it's sort of like a drug that looks cool on paper, but that seems to be almost inert, well-tolerated, no. <laughs> but not all that successful. Sadly. I see. Okay. So, you know, one of the big problems with um, a lot of the medications you mentioned is is hypotension. Um, and so that's kind of what can be nice about some of the topicals. Um, and uh, I, I'm curious, have you ever had to use or seen any benefit with Botox injections? Right, right. So uh, Botox has some uh, trials. They're usually not blinded. It's hard to blind when you're injecting things uh, into the patient's <laughs> hands. But um, right. they, I think they get a series of, of injections at the web spaces to help kind of paralyze the arteriole or the digital artery, or maybe even to affect the nerve that's innervating uh, the artery. I'm not sure what they're trying to do, but I think it's paralyzing the smooth muscle in the artery. And um, there's positive and negative data. I haven't tried it myself because I don't really know how to get the Botox for the patient. It wouldn't be reimbursed and also how much to inject. Because if you read these trials, you don't know what, th what they're injecting or where. But I've asked sometimes uh, some of the people like the headache clinics that do Botox to say, do you mind just doing this finger because there's a really bad digital ulcer? And usually they say, yeah, we'll do that in about two years because they're a headache clinic and it's a long wait. <laughs> So we usually can't get it, which right. goes to say sometimes I will get stellate ganglion blocks. If someone's got, you know, they've already had an amputation of a finger and they've got a gangrenous uh, tip of a finger, um, stellate ganglion blocks or for a foot uh, lumbar sympathectomies can sometimes salvage that patient through the winter season. Um, again, pain clinics sometimes will do it. Anesthesia knows how to do it. They don't like doing it. They block with usually guanethidine or something else that will block the sympathetic nerves, which then goes to looking at other topicals as well. So um, we've used sometimes topical PDE5s, they can be compounded, and they've exceeded my expectations. Usually, I'm just using it in an area where um, there might be early digital ulcers, we call them ulcerettes, they're hardly there very much, or we're adding it to background therapy, sometimes even including oral PDE5s to try to salvage that one finger where um, it's pretty much um, a threatened ischemia. Maybe I'm going to do it while they're on Isloprost, um, um, which is uh, PGI2, or maybe I'll do it while they're on a PDE5. So those are some of the other little things that are um, eminence-based more than evidence-based. And is that applied again to like the bases of the fingers or that you're applying directly to the uh, lesions themselves? Right. So since we don't know where to apply it, I do it at the web space because again, it's always better to try to open up an artery that actually has some flow. I don't do an angiogram necessarily, but if you do on some of these patients, um, you know, pre-op, they might get one as a, for instance, um, if you do an angiogram, they have like no blood flow from about the PIPs distally on all their fingers, not just a finger that's threatening to fall off. And they have a whole bunch of little collaterals or they have, would have lost all their fingers already. So again, and to try to go um, near where you have your ulcer is probably not as optimal to vasodilate as in the web spaces. But no one really knows. That's just what I do. So who knows? All right, Janet, let's take a question from a listener. 
Hi, this is Jenny Hong, a fellow at University of Alberta. Here's my question for Dr. Hope. How does chilblains differ from Raynaud's in terms of its relevance in diagnosing a connective tissue disease and treatment? Thank you. Right. So first of all, chillblains might or might not be associated with Raynaud's and about, as I say, 50% are associated with uh, SLE or other CTD, but mostly SLE. If we look at uh, chillblains, it's more on the feet than on the hands. It's often painful, but sometimes painless. Uh, raised areas, they can be small or a bit larger. Um, they often will peel off or heal with um, some desquamating skin. They might be blue. They might be uh, not just on tips, but even, um, again, around the PIP and a bit distally. And um, most patients that have chillblains know it because they'll say, oh, the dots are coming out again now that it's getting damp. Uh, it might actually be what trench foot is. Whenever I read about trench foot, I have no clue, but I think it's really bad to have wet, damp feet on and on. And it's probably bad to be in a war because it was described in the war as well. Right. Um, and in terms of treatment, do you use similar treatments or are you, are you focusing more on like topical steroids or topical agents? Right. So for most chillblains, um, I often kind of ignore it if it doesn't bother a patient too much, but I do investigate right. if you have chillblains for SLE. So I do like throw in the ANA in those patients. When it comes to treatment, if they're having a lot of pain, um, I'm usually not going to block like four toes and I don't know how to block a long-term wet. We only have lidocaine in our, in our area and I don't want to put marcaine in an area that might have a poor blood flow distally and certainly not lidocaine with epi. So I might use, uh, calcium channel blockers without any data whatsoever to say, if we get blood flow, you might heal more quickly and maybe you won't get as many. And to be quite honest, I'm not sure it works. There could be a placebo effect. And also because chillblain cycles, sometimes people have two bad years, often in the cooler weather and the dampness, and then they have three good years. So, or whatever, it just cycles a bit. So um, with chillblains, who knows how to treat it? Um, some patients use their own barriers. So if they have distally, it's rubbing on their their feet on like a great toe or the second toe, that's usually longer than the great toe in some people. They might put on steroid cream or just polysporin or fusidin as a barrier, and it helps them feel a bit better. But I can't tell you that any of it really does anything. Right. Okay. Well, those are that's all really, really helpful. Um, do you have any uh, additional pearls that you wanted to share on Raynaud's diagnosis management otherwise uh, that we didn't get to? So a couple things, if you have distal, like um, at your uh, periungal area, so I'll call it proximal at the periungal area, if you have dilated capillaries, if as the patient gets better, they go away, it's probably dermatomyositis, uh, because sometimes it's hard to tell. If the patient's still bad and they go away, it's probably scleroderma and they've dropped out more. So once you drop out with scleroderma, it's at this point in how we treat patients, it's not coming back. Whereas... Um, quite wild um, dilated capillaries superficially at the periungal area in dermatomyositis can go right back to normal as the patient improves, which is interesting because we're often treating them with immune modulation. And I don't think immune suppressives do anything for your dilated capillaries uh, distally. Although a couple times, some European studies have said, well, um, new dilated capillaries um, often the active phase often go with more new or worsening organ involvement, but the correlation is quite 
mild at best to moderate. Then the other pearl is if you have worse problems on your feet than your hands, even with systemic sclerosis. So if you're getting more digital ulcers on your toes, your toes are usually a lot more protected um, in the winter time for obvious reasons. You usually don't go running around in bare feet in the cold. So I look for peripheral vascular disease if it's more in their feet because maybe there's something angioplastiable, maybe there's something that they can get a bypass for. So, and these are often um, people who smoke. So digital ulcers are worse and more numerous and more recurrent and slower to heal in smokers with systemic sclerosis than non-smokers. So no matter what, get your patients to stop smoking, I guess, other than if they have inflammatory bowel disease, we'll still tell them to stop smoking, but but um, the, the only area where smoking is cessation is not as robust as uh, apparently Crohn's is uh, somewhat better in smokers and non-smokers, but not a good enough reason in my book. So get them <laughs> to stop smoking. So that's my other pearl. All right. Well, Janet, as always, I've, I've learned a lot. Thank you again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening to this Ask an Expert segment of Around the Room. Upcoming segments will be about how to differentiate between inflammatory arthritis and arthralgias and on lupus pearls and scleroderma pearls. Send us your questions on those topics to info at room.ca or via Twitter by tagging the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom and you could be featured in an upcoming episode of Around the Room. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bajnoff. We would like to give a special thanks to the communications committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.